Hello, Woodland Hills. Greg and Paul here. We just want to share a few words with you about something Greg's mentioned to us before, and that's this rising revolution, uh, something really that's happening around the world, a sense amongst God's people that, uh, that God is a Jesus-looking God and that he's raising up a Jesus-looking people. And I can say as a pastor here at Woodland Hills, I've seen an increasing number of emails over the last several years from people, not just in North America, but really around the world, letting us know that they are finding Woodland Hills a source of constant encouragement and inspiration. This is coming through to them, both through our weekly podcasts and through Greg's writings pretty consistently. And I know that uh, one of these writings, uh, Greg's been in process on for eight years, uh, an important book mm -hmm. that really is helping uh, ask the question, how do you see a Jesus-looking God throughout the Old Testament when there's some passages in there that don't quite look like Jesus? I, I think it's such an honor and a privilege for us to be positioned where we are in this movement, um, to be able to influence this and shape this movement. It's, it's an exciting uh, time and exciting role that we get to play. Uh, the book is coming along very well. I thought I was going to have it done in January. Um, the good news on that is I made a lot of progress, more than I thought. The bad news is that the book keeps on growing, or kept on growing. It's now done, but um, yeah, it was supposed to be 400 pages, then that grew to 600, that grew to 1,000, and now it's 1,250-some uh, pages. Uh, but I have the body of the text done. Now I just need to finish up some appendices, and you're going to help me with some footnotes. And so I think this can be done in a week or two. And then I want to uh, start work on a popular version of this, because uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God is, is uh, uh, geared towards an academic uh, audience. It's very scholarly. But the, I, I, want, I want this to be accessible to, to lay people as well. So we'll uh, be looking for that. So in light of that, we'd like to encourage you over the next three weeks to particularly be praying for Greg as he gives that final push on this Please. mammoth project. Uh, maybe even gets a start on the smaller volume that uh, we're all looking forward to as well. And we'd like to encourage you to, over the next three weeks, um, be faithful in coming and gathering and hearing from other voices that God's raised up around here at Woodland Hills. Um, what God's doing here at Woodland Hills, it's, it's bigger than Greg, it's bigger than all of us. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Like Greg and Paul talked about, uh, Greg's doing this book thing, so we are honored to have a few guest speakers. Next week, it's going to be Seth McCoy. You guys have heard from him a couple weeks ago. Today, we're really lucky to have Vanessa Williams back, so welcome her up to the stage. <clears throat> I told her, I told her uh, yesterday that I was bummed that she's the first of the guest speakers because I wanted to use my Save the Best for Last Vanessa Williams reference. <laughs> But, so she's the first. Some of you get that. You older people get that. Um, but yeah, she, she has a really exciting message for us. I've already tried to put some of the stuff into practice last night. Oh, it's, it's really, yeah. oh that's I'll great. You, yeah. So um, help me uh, pray for her and welcome mm. her into, into uh, today's service. Thanks. Father God, we, um, we're honored to play a part in your creation. We're honored to, to, uh, to just participate in this earth that you created. And uh, Lord, we... We just ask you to infuse your Holy Spirit with, yes. with what's in Vanessa's brain right now to, to share with us. God, we want, to get, we want to get your perspective on our life. We want to get your priorities in our hearts. And we want to um, just look more like you and reflect your glory to this world. So, Lord, we just ask you to uh, have your hand over this service and open up our ears to hear your words. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Hello, you guys. <laughs> it's been a while. Yes, so as many of you know, I moved last summer out to New York City to start my PhD in theology. 
And it's been really incredible. It's been wonderful, a really good experience. I'm totally loving it out there. But I have to tell you guys, I miss you so much. I do, I do. This is the first time I've been in Minnesota since moving away. So it's been a really long time. So I am so grateful to be here today with all of you. And I'm just really excited for this sermon today. Um, Our sermon for today, speaking of, is titled The Song of Creation. And our text for today is going to be Genesis 1. So um, as you can imagine, if you didn't already know, Genesis 1 is about the creation of the world. And I chose this text for us today because I feel like a lot of us, a lot of us are familiar with it. A lot of us know it really well. Some people don't, and that's okay. That's great. We're all in different spaces with this. But I think that even for those of us who know this really well, who have heard it so many times, I think that the content can often seem very mysterious or confusing. We still have questions about it. Um, Not only that, but this particular chapter has been one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Bible. Um, And it's even been the source for some people for faith crises. So I thought it'd be really great if we just addressed it head on and talked about it here today. So to do this, we sort of have two parts that we need to do. The first part that we have to do is we have to situate Genesis 1 in its original historical cultural context. That means we have to ask questions like, why was this written? To whom was this written? Where was this written? Answering questions like those are going to really help us get a good foundation for being able to transition to our second step, which is asking, well, what does this ancient text mean for us today as 21st century Christians? So that's the task before us. Okay? All right. So Genesis 1. Where was this written? Genesis 1 was written in the ancient Near East. Okay, so for those of us who are here in Minnesota, that's on the other side of the world. That's like Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia. Those are some of the main countries that were there. And it was thousands and thousands of years ago. And as I mentioned before, this particular text is about the creation of the world. And we call this kind of a text a cosmology. Cosmologies give an account for the origins of the universe. But Genesis 1 was not the only cosmology of its day. There were many other religions, and they had their own creation stories. And in fact, Genesis 1 was written to confront those other ancient religions and those other stories and provide a completely different narrative about God and about humans and about the world. What this means for us is that reading Genesis 1 is actually very much like hearing one side of a phone conversation. If you hear only one side of a phone conversation, that gives you a lot of information. But at the same time, it can leave some gaps as to what that other side was saying. It can leave some information incomplete. There's still questions there. So what we actually have to do is we have to start by asking ourselves, who's on the other side of the phone? What did that conversation sound like? What were these other ancient religions saying? We need to know this because then it's going to help us understand how Genesis 1 is interacting with them. So let's, in our minds, go to the ancient Near East and ask, what was the religious environment there? Well, one of the biggest things is that most people were polytheists. Now, polytheism means that people believed in multiple deities, and a deity is a god or a goddess. So people believed in lots of different gods and goddesses. And when they would talk in their cosmologies about the creation of the world, oftentimes these stories actually started by telling about how these different deities, the gods and goddesses, were created. And then after that, they would talk about how the world was created. 
Another thing that was going on in the ancient Near East is that these deities were limited in knowledge and in power. So it's pretty different from what a lot of us would think about today if we were trying to imagine, you know, what would one of these gods or goddesses be like. They were very limited. So, for example, they could die because they were mortal. Um, they didn't know everything, and so sometimes they could be deceived. Like, gods and goddesses would lie to each other. They would trick each other. Even humans would lie to gods and trick gods. So limited knowledge. Um, they would also they'd get hungry. If they didn't eat, they would starve to death. So they were limited in their knowledge and in their power. And one of the most interesting limitations that these gods and goddesses had were with respect to their travel. They were geographically confined. And what I mean by this is that people believed that the gods of Egypt stayed in Egypt. They didn't go to Persia or Canaan or somewhere else. They stayed and they were confined in that area. What this means is when people would travel to other countries in the ancient world, they would usually worship the gods and goddesses of whatever country they went to. That wasn't seen as being, you know, disloyal or wrong or you know, somehow bad towards, you know, the gods and goddesses that were back home. This was just the normal part of the day. So again, very different from like what we might think about. Now, these different deities were identified with different parts of nature. Um, they were represented in nature. So in some of these stories, you know, the sun is a god, and the sky was seen to be as a goddess. And different animals represented different gods and goddesses. Not only that, but there were different gods and goddesses for different needs that people had. So suppose you need rain for your crops. You might pray to a rain goddess. Whereas if your nation was going to war, you might pray to a god of war. So different deities in nature, different deities for different needs. Now, these different gods and goddesses had a variety of temperaments and personalities, but generally speaking, they were very selfish and self-centered. And this um, impacted the relationship between humans and deities. So they were really concerned with themselves. They wouldn't do something for human beings out of the goodness of their hearts. They really did not care what happened to humans. They were doing their own things in the heavenly realms, you know, getting into wars, getting into fights, doing all kinds of stuff. And so what happened to humans, they really didn't care. And what this meant was, um, and they were also very capricious and impulsive, so that was another thing that's going on in there. So you never really knew what they were going to do. So what ended up happening then is the relationship between humans and deities was transactional, okay? Because people couldn't trust the deities to be there for them, so they had to have transactions. A transaction means I do something for you, you do something for me. It's very much like what we think about like contract work. So, you know, if I hire you to build a roof on my house, you build my roof, I give you money, there's an exchange, that's a transaction. That was how people interacted with these different gods and goddesses. So that's the general religious environment that we find ourselves in in the ancient Near East. Lots of different gods and goddesses. They're found in nature. They're limited in a lot of different ways. Um, they're limited in how far they can go, different places, and the relationship between people and these deities was transactional. Genesis 1 was written to confront all of these basic assumptions about humans, about gods, and about the world. It is written as this countercultural narrative and is responding to all of these religious beliefs. Now, this is critical for us to get, especially us here today in the 21st century. Because sometimes when we read Genesis 1 and we read about the creation, people sometimes think that this was written to confront Darwin or Stephen Hawking or someone like that. But it absolutely was not. It was written to confront these different ancient religious beliefs. 
So what we need to do here then is we're going to go through Genesis 1 very carefully and we're going to see all of these different elements of like where Genesis 1 is making these arguments with these other ancient religions. We're going to see how it's interacting. And not only that, we're also going to see some of the literary features and how those functioned within this text. So we're going to be looking at it very carefully. Now, one of the things I would recommend before we get started is that I'm going to be doing a lot of detailed work up here. And this is great because I feel like it will give you tools and resources that you need um, in order to just be able to understand this part of scripture better. But at the same time, I'm going to be interrupting the flow of the text at a lot of different points. And so what I would encourage all of you to do is, you know, later this week, um, either with a friend or on your own, go back, read Genesis 1 again so that you can see it as a unified whole since we're kind of going to be chopping it up a little bit here. Okay, let's get started. Genesis 1. Genesis 1 opens up with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created the heavens and the earth. What this means is that God is, um, he is making everything that is physical and everything that is spiritual. So this is a theological argument, because the heavens and the earth, that represents material world and the spiritual world. And both in the ancient world and even today, a lot of times we think to ourselves that things that are spiritual are really important, but the physical stuff, like, that's not so important or that's kind of bad, like, that's not so great. But no, this text comes out and says, actually, the physical and the spiritual is created by God, and therefore it is good. Not only that, but we start off with, in the beginning, God created. So God doesn't need to be created, like those other ancient Near East gods and goddesses, um, who their cosmologies would start with talking about how they were created. God doesn't have a beginning. God is eternal. So here are already these theological arguments. Not only that, but it's also saying that God is not relegated to one part of the earth like those other ancient Near East deities. He doesn't stay in just one country. He made the whole world, the entire heavens and earth, bow down to this one God. And in fact, this means there are no other gods. They're not mentioned in this text because they're not there. This is saying there's only one God. It is this God, and he created the heavens and the earth. So already, in just verse 1, we have all this theology and all these arguments, and it's completely countercultural um, in dealing with these ancient religions. So again, just verse 1. Okay, from there, where does it go? It says that the earth was void and that there was darkness. And the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the earth. And God says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Then God looks at the earth and God says, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. Okay, what does that even mean? What's happening here is in the ancient Aries, people believed that if you went up into the sky, up into you know, outer space, all that stuff up there they thought was made out of water. Because remember, this is a pre-scientific description of the universe. So they thought up there was water. And so they thought for God to make water here on the earth, God would have to divide the water that's above the earth from the water that's on the earth. And so God does this with the dome, and the dome is the sky. And so the sky serves as kind of this protective shield that wraps around the earth. And there's evening and there's morning, the second day. Then God says, let the waters on the earth gather all into one place and let dry ground appear. And it does. And God sees that this is good. And then God says, let this ground, let it bear forth vegetation. And so trees and shrubs and different fruits all come out of the earth. And God sees that this is good. And there's evening and there's morning, the third day. 
we need to pause here for a moment and talk about this. We need to ask ourselves, what's going on with all these different days? Because people get really hung up on this. In fact, people uh, start wondering, does this mean that God created these things in 24-hour periods? Like, what's happening? And in fact, historically speaking, it's been very interesting because before modern science, but still thousands of years after this was originally written, people would read this text and they would say, oh my goodness, God is not very powerful. Because look at this. If God was powerful, he would have created the whole world in an instant. But instead, it took him a whole day just to make light, right? And a whole day to make the sky and so on and so forth. And so people thought, you know what? God's not very powerful. So faith crisis. But then, after modern science, people said, no, 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 no. The problem isn't that God made the world too slowly. It's that God made the world too quickly. Because we know from things like geology and biology and physics, we know that these things would have taken several millennia, not just a couple days. So again, faith crisis. So we here today, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what's going on? Did God make the world too quickly or too slowly? The answer is neither. Stay with me here. So this author is not trying to give us a timeline or tell us whether it took 24 hours to make each of these different things. That's not what's going on here. Instead, this author of Genesis 1 is giving this particular text a particular literary shape. So most things that we read today have a chronological shape, and that shape looks like a straight line. This thing happened, then this thing happened, then this thing happened, and so on, like this. That's what novels are like, that's what newspapers are like, that's what history books are like. That's one particular shape that we're very familiar with. That's not what Genesis 1 is like. Genesis 1 unfolds, and it has these even parallels, very much like two wings of a butterfly. So it's not a straight-line chronology, like a history book. It's not like a scientific textbook. It's more poetic, and that was common for an ancient Near East cosmology. And this... Um, shape that unfolds is actually another theological argument, and it's a part of the message. So let me show you what I mean. Take a look at this here. So here we have this chart where we have the six days of creation. And on one side, we have the first three days, so it's evenly divided in half, and we have creating spaces on one side, and we have filling spaces on the other side. These are the two halves. This is sort of the two wings of the butterfly, if you will. So what you see is on day one, God creates light and darkness. Those are the spaces. What you'll see is on day four, which is directly across from it, God creates lights for the sky, the sun and moon and stars. So he fills those spaces. On day two, we have God creating water and sky. Then on day five, which is directly across from it, God will fill those spaces with fish and birds. Then on day three, where we saw that God created dry land, um, directly across from that is day six, and God will bring forth land animals to fill that space. So we have these even parallels of creating spaces and filling spaces. And so, again, this text really unfolds before us and is not chronological. So this is, you know, a very aesthetic, poetic kind of way of doing this. So it's kind of artsy, which is cool, and it's beautiful. But there's something else going on here. By setting up this um, particular text in this way, this author is giving a theological argument. And what this author is saying is that this God of Genesis is a God of order, not of chaos. God is intentional. God is purposeful. God is not capricious and impulsive like those other ancient Near East gods. And so this text, which talks about God's creation, is also ordered and carefully structured, just like the way God works. So it's kind of cool. It's actually pretty brilliant, using poetry and then also using that poetry to make theological arguments. But there's more going on here, too. You might have noticed that in this text, there's a lot of things that get repeated, very much like a refrain in a song. 
So we see that each new day starts with, and God said. And each day closes with, there was evening and there was morning. So this is kind of a refrain. And so again, it's got sort of a poetic element to it. But it's not just that. It's also making a theological argument. And what this author is saying is they're saying that God is so powerful that simply by the power of God's voice, God brings things into existence out of nothing. By the power of God's voice, he is bringing this whole world, this whole creation into being. So again, poetry, theology. There's one more refrain that you might have noticed that's going on here. Each time God makes something new, God declares that it's good, right? So he makes, you know, the sky, and that's good. He makes the, the dry ground, that's good, and so on and so forth. So it gets repeated throughout. But again, this is another theological argument. And this author is saying, kind of like we mentioned before, that the material world is good. That it's not just the spiritual things, that all of this was created by God, and therefore it is good. So again, theology, poetry. It's pretty neat. It's pretty cool. So let's jump back into our text, um, back where we left off. So now we have the sky, we have the ground, we have water. So what's happening next? Next, God says, Now let there be lights in the sky, and let these lights serve as signs for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky in order to give light to the earth. That's another way of saying that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And what you might notice is that in the actual text, it doesn't say the sun, moon, and stars. It talks about these different lights. And the reason why the author does this is this is another theological argument. You see, in other ancient Near East religions, very often the sun and moon and stars represented very powerful deities. And so this author is saying, no, no, no. These are just a part of the creation. They're good because God has made them. But look, they're not deities. They're, they're not their own little powerful gods. They are a part of the creation of the one God. So God makes the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, and, so, and God sees that it's good, and there's evening and there's morning, the fourth day. Then God says, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let there be birds to fill the sky and fly across the dome of the sky. And so the waters fill with all kinds of different sea creatures and fish, and birds fill the sky. And God sees that this is good. And God tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then there's evening, and there's morning, the fifth day. Then God says, Now let the land bring forth all different creatures, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was. There was. And the earth fills with all these different animals. And God sees that it's good. And just like the fish and the birds, God tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. Then something really interesting happens in our text. There is a grammatical shift. We had this rhythm going, let there be this, let there be that, as God creates different things, right? But then what happens is God has a, um, his speech changes. So it goes from let there be this to now let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness. So there's a shift. And grammatically speaking, we're just saying there's a change from third person, let there be, to first person, let us make. And the shift is there to draw our attention, to notice that there's something that's interrupted the cadence. And so what that's supposed to alert us to is something special and different is about to happen because something special and different is happening in our rhythm and in our text. But there's another thing that's going on here that might be confusing or distracting for us, and so we have to talk about it. And it's that issue of God speaking in the plural. I don't know if you noticed that, maybe today or previously, but when God creates human beings and God speaks... 
God uses the plural. He says, now let us make in our image, in our likeness. The first time I noticed this, it seriously freaked me out. I was so uh, just like worried, I guess. And it was so sad. I was like 12 years old, reading my Bible. And, you know, I love God and all that stuff. And then I get to this passage in the Bible, and I believe the Bible. And I'm like, whoa, God's speaking in the plural. That sounds like there's multiple gods, but I know there can't be. And I, like, genuinely was scared. I just, like, closed the Bible. Like, I just tried to be, like, calm. I, like, set it aside. And I was like, I'm just not going to look at that for a while. uh, Because I don't know what's going on inside of there. I don't have the tools and resources to deal with that. So going to put it away on the shelf for a while and, and not deal with it. So that was me. It's, again, so sad, you know, 12 years old. Um, just scared of the Bible. Uh, that was me. Uh, <laughs> but as it turns out, it's actually not very scary. Uh, it's very, very basic, actually. So what's happening here in the text is this is what we call a plural of exhortation. Those of us who are big fans of grammar might know what this is. Plurals of exhortation mean that whoever is speaking is giving themselves encouragement. And when we encourage ourselves, when we're talking to ourselves, a lot of times the way that we do that is by speaking to ourselves in the plural. So if you imagine yourself, um, imagine you're about to run a marathon. You might get up to the starting line and you might say to yourself, okay, let's do this. If you say, let's do this, you're speaking in the plural. You're saying, let us do this. That's a short way of saying that longer phrase. But there's only one of you, and you know that. Um, you might also say to yourself, if you're about to do something really important or difficult or exciting, you might say, okay, we can do this. We can do this. Again, you're speaking to yourself in the plural. It's just a funky thing with grammar. It's so weird. We do it all the time, and we don't even really notice it. And so that's all that's going on here is that this, um, the author who's writing here, they're just using normal grammar and, and having God speaking to God's self. Um, it happens to be in the plural. So again, yeah, not so scary. It's just like, oh, it's just grammar. Okay, so that's what's going on there in case you were ever curious or wondering about that. So jump back to the text. Okay, so God says, Now let us make human beings, humankind, in our image and in our likeness. And God says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God makes humankind, women and men, in his image and in his likeness. And he blesses them and he says to them that they have dominion over the earth, that they should subdue the rest of the earth, and they have rulership over the fish and over the birds and over all the different animals. God gives them that authority. And then after that, God designates different um, food for all the different creatures. So God says, okay, all the different seed-bearing plants, like those are for human beings to eat. And then all the green plants, those are for all the animals to eat. And so, again, this alerts us to the fact that God really cares about his creation, about humans, but about the whole creation. So for human beings, their relationship with God is not based on transaction, Before human beings ever could do something for God, God already establishes this relationship with them where they have a place of honor within the creation, where they are his image. Not only that, but God cares to make sure that there are suitable habitats for different forms of life. So he makes those, and he also makes sure that there's food for all the different parts of creation. So God puts all these things together and is very intentional and loving and caring. And again, this stands in sharp contrast with some of those other stories in the ancient Near East. Now it is at this point, after all these different things are created, all these things are put together, that God steps back, looks at the whole creation, and says, this is not just good. This is very good. And there's evening and there's morning, the sixth day. 
That is where Genesis 1 comes to a close. So we've seen a lot of different things going on here. We've seen lots of different themes arise, both you know, theologically. We've gotten a little bit into the literature, the history. Lots of different things, really good information. We see how this is arguing with the ancient Near East, saying, you know, there's not polytheism, there's just one God, saying that God really cares about his creation. He's not, you know, impulsive and capricious. No, he's intentional with his creation, right? So there's lots of different things happening here. And it's, it's interesting, but I think sometimes it's hard to tell, okay, how does all this different information translate into informing our lives today as 21st century Christians? Especially because there is a bit of a disconnect between that ancient world and our world today. So what does this mean for us living today as 21st century Christians? I think that there are two things in particular that we really need to get from this text. The first thing is that we are co-creatures made by God, living alongside and dependent upon the other creatures. So when God makes this world and puts it all together, we see that there are these balances that happen. There's day and there's night, right? There's these different things that balance each other out. Uh, There's water and there's dry ground. But we also see how this whole creation is interdependent, which means each part of creation fundamentally relies on each other. So all creatures need other creatures in order to have food. Like, that's just a fact. We all need the sun in order for us to have heat and to have warmth. We all need gravity to keep us on the ground. We'd have lots of problems without gravity. Um, So all of creation, both the animate parts and inanimate parts, are relating to each other and dependent upon each other. But it's easy to forget. I mean, even basic, basic things, right? Like for us, like when we breathe in, it's so great. We love to breathe in and breathe out. But sometimes we forget, you know, when we breathe in, it's to take in oxygen. And when we breathe out, all we breathe out is carbon dioxide. So what that means is that if there was only humans on this earth, we would all suffocate on our own carbon dioxide. But luckily, there are plants on this earth, and plants absorb carbon dioxide and put back out more oxygen so we can breathe. So we are very intimately tied with the rest of creation. We are all dependent upon each other, but not only that, we are all dependent upon God. All of us have existence, all of us have being, and are held into being only because of God. So we can all be grateful to God, um, grateful for, for making us and for sustaining us, and also grateful for this whole world that works together that we are a part of. And so, like I said before, it's, we forget this a lot. It's very easy to forget and just go about your day. So one of the cool things about Genesis 1 is that it reminds us of all these different things, of how we are dependent upon the creation and how we work within the creation and our co-creatures and how we can be grateful to God for making us in the first place. So that's the first thing that we can take away from Genesis 1. The second thing is that our special relationship with God gives us a special responsibility to creation. Okay, so what I'm referencing here is verse 26, which tells us that when God makes human beings, God makes them in his image and in his likeness. And then he tells human beings that they have dominion and that they should rule over the earth and subdue the other parts of the earth, the other animals, the plants, and all that different stuff. Okay. We have to think about this particular part of the chapter very, very carefully because this has been a very controversial piece of this particular chapter. The problem is is that many people historically have taken these verses and used them to justify some very, very bad behavior. People have taken these verses and they have said, great, look at this. God made this whole world and gives it all to us. 
So this whole world was created just to satisfy my needs so I can exploit it in any way that I want. And so people have not only felt okay, but they felt justified in polluting waters and polluting air and you know, cutting down rainforest and abusing animals and doing whatever it is that they want and whatever it is that they need. They just feel free to you know, just take it from the earth, right? Now, here's the thing. I actually don't think it's surprising that people came to that conclusion. It's not surprising, and here's why. When we think about rulers or people who have authority, a lot of times the image that we have in our minds is a monarch, so like a king or a queen. And historically speaking, kings and queens, different monarchs, they have used their power and their authority and their rulership to get whatever it is that they want. So we see, you know, in in history and in stories, kings and queens, they always have, you know, the best food, the biggest palaces, the most money, the most land, and everybody else in the, the country or the nation that they're in, everybody else just has to accommodate them however they want, right? So that's like our historical image of what a ruler is like. So it's not surprising that people would take that image, apply it to the Bible, and then do some of these different things that are actually detrimental to the creation. But here is the problem with that kind of thinking, We only come to that conclusion about rulership if we don't read our Bibles carefully. Because if we look at these verses in which God gives us this amazing authority to rule within creation, it is coupled with and directly connected to imaging God. Which means we don't rule in general or however we want or whatever we feel like. We specifically rule in a way that images God. And imaging God means we're putting on display God's love, God's character, right? And we're putting on display the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, those who are strong, they help the weak. Those who are outcasts are invited in. Those with authority are humble. That's the way the kingdom of God works. So again, we don't just rule this creation in general or however we want or how we see other rulers within the world operating. No, we are supposed to be ruling in a way that images a God that puts on display the love of God and the character of God. Which means the question that we need to ask ourselves today is not just how can I rule within creation, but how can we better rule within a creation that reflects the life and the light and the love of God out to all parts of creation? That's the question before us. So I have for us to think about this question four different steps that I think will be really helpful for all of us to sort of go on this trajectory and image God out to the rest of creation. The first one is being curious and being excited about the creation. So here's the thing. It's really hard to be motivated to do anything if you're not excited about it and if you're not curious about it and you're not energized. But I think that like as we get older and you know we become grown-ups and we get into our routines, uh, we get less and less excited about the creation, about learning about it, about nature. You know, we just sort of get into our routines. And then when we think about things, even like, you know, pollution, all of us would say like, yeah, pollution is bad. But it's sort of like an abstract concept and we know we need to take care of it. But it's kind of like a burden and we feel very disconnected from a lot of these issues, right? So to illustrate this point, I actually have two stories for us um, to talk about. So the first one I want to tell you about um, with being excited and being curious and reigniting that in us is with a story from me from back in college. So when I was in college, I actually worked at a greenhouse and I also worked in an arboretum. And if you don't know what an arboretum is, it's basically like just a big forest, pretty much. And so I'd work out there, do lots of different things. Um, But one of the coolest parts was that a lot of times school kids would come and visit and we would teach them different things. And, like, kids, okay, kids are hilarious, right? Like, they're so funny. So, like, as soon as these kids would get off of the bus, 
they were just like so energized. They were just like, oh my gosh, like we're outside. I can't believe it, right? Like they're just like so crazy, like whoa. And they'd be like, oh wow, look at this tree. It's so amazing. I can't believe it. And like, look at this lake. There's water in the lake. I can't believe it. You know, it's just so exciting, right? And these kids are just so energized. And then, you know, we would teach them different things that were new. So like one of the things that they got really excited about was we would tell them how agriculture is really closely related to the bee population. So like we wouldn't have different foods like avocados, almonds, pumpkins, a lot of apples if it weren't for bees. And so kids were like, no way, like bees? I didn't know that bees could do all this different stuff. Oh my gosh, you know? And then um, one of the biggest things that was so much fun is we would teach the kids how to make maple syrup. So we would show them every single step of the way, like here's how you tap a tree for the sap and here's how we collect the sap and here's all these different steps that we do. And they were just amazed, like no way. Like I didn't know that maple syrup came from trees wow, you know, just minds exploding. And they always had more and more questions and everything was mysterious and exciting and something to know about, right? Just so much energy. Now contrast that with another story that I have. Now this is from the first week when I moved out to New York City. So I moved out there and um, within the first week, me and one of my roommates, we were walking down the sidewalk and there was this lady ahead of us and she had all these papers that she was carrying in her hands and all of a sudden she just dropped them. And my roommate, you know, picked them up really quick, got her attention and said, oh, excuse me, ma'am, you know, you dropped these papers, here you go. You know, really nice, really, really nice of her. Well, this lady turns around, and I just could not believe this. This is verbatim. She turns around and she says to us, no, sweetie, I meant to do that. I was littering and walked away. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I was like, I am so shocked. Now, mind you, this is the first week in New York City, so that was shocking. So I've seen a lot of other much more shocking things since. But but I could not believe it. I just thought, you, you, you littered on purpose and you're, I just mind blown there. So I couldn't believe it. So I was just like, this lady is definitely not excited about creation. Like she's definitely not into it. Like she's not caring so much about how, you know, her actions might be impacting the world. Like she's totally, you know, just not into it. So um, I don't think that any of you would ever do anything like that. I can't imagine any of you just like, you know, throwing your garbage on the ground and just absolutely not caring. But I think that it's true for a lot of us that as we get older, we start to become more indifferent, not so excited, not so passionate about creation. And a lot of times it's just kind of like a burden or like an abstract concept in our mind. And so I think one of the first things that we have to do is just start get back to our roots and um, get excited about creation and about nature and the things that are out there and just be curious um, because that's going to help us to be motivated to do something else and to make this not burdensome but an exciting part of our lives. So being curious, getting excited, that's our first step. Our second step is taking time for education. Now this has to do with education with like nature and environment and learning about it and learning about God's creation and that's part of it. But another really important part about education is learning what we can do to really participate in the flourishing of nature and making sure that our actions are corresponding with that. Because sometimes we think we're helping, but we're not. And so I have another little story about this. So this is from when I was in kindergarten. So little Vanessa is just, you know, a little peanut out there in the world. And um, in kindergarten, we had these trees in my classroom, just these tiny trees. And for the students, we were supposed to help take care of these trees by watering them. Now, my mom had read to me the Lorax, 
And, you know, I found it to be a compelling narrative. And, and that was how I spoke, too, when I was five. I said, you know, this is a really compelling narrative. And um, I am persuaded that, you know, protecting trees and helping them to flourish, I think that that's a meaningful endeavor. And so I am deciding that I want to participate in this. So that was kindergarten Vanessa. So I was excited about having these trees in the classroom, and I really enjoyed, you know, watering the trees. But there was a problem, and that problem was I was actually very bad at taking care of trees. And the reason for this is because I was obstinate when it came to further education on the matter. So here's what I mean. I would water the trees, but I would always water just like the leaves on the trees. And my teacher would tell me, no, 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 Vanessa, you need to water, you know, on the soil, like where the roots are. That's how water gets into the tree. And, you know, that's how you water them properly. I thought she was ridiculous. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't see any roots here, but I definitely see some leaves that need watering. So, <laughs> I don't know. I think I know how to do this right. So what I would do is, is when she was watching me, I would pretend like I was watering the soil. Like, I'd kind of like watch out of the corner of my eye. And as soon as she turned her back, I'd go back to watering leaves again. Like, <laughs> that was me in kindergarten. Uh, I've grown since then. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so that's what I was like. So I, I was sincere. I thought I was helping. I thought I was doing something important. And that, that sincerity is, is great. It's wonderful. But one of the things we have to remember is not just to be sincere, but make sure that our actions correspond with that sincerity. And so part of that comes with education. And I think also, as we get older, a lot of times, you know, it's like we learn something and we're like, okay, I already know this. I have this down. Like, I know how to recycle. I know how to not pollute. And so we're just like, okay, I've got that done. And we don't go back and like maybe learn more or see if things have changed. And so it's really important to every once in a while just refresh yourself on that. Because, so for example, um, at my apartment complex, one of the things that I see very, very often is we have this area where there's recycling. And I see all kinds of stuff in those recycling bins. I see, you know, um, like pizza boxes that still have cheese on them. There's, you know, different kinds of frozen food boxes that are actually not recyclable. Um, there's certain light bulbs, like fluorescent lights, that will end up in there. And I, I believe that the people who are putting these things in there are absolutely sincere and absolutely trying to do something that will help the world and that helps God's creation. However, the way that they're going about it is actually harmful. So it's really important that we make sure that we're educated on these things and make sure we're up to date. And I think, to me, one of the easiest ways to make sure that you are up to date on all these different kinds of things is just checking out your county's website. Because sometimes these things change from county to county. Like, how do you dispose of things? Or how do you, you know, take care of different things? Um, and so you can just look on their websites. We're in Ramsey County right now, and I feel like they have a really excellent website. And they'll tell you everything from, like, how do I dispose of paint in a safe way? Or, you know, which plastics are recyclable and which ones are not? You know, what do I do with my batteries? All those different things. It's very, very easy to access, and it just takes a couple minutes, and then it helps you to be able to really make sure that your actions are corresponding with what your intentions are. So our second step is to make sure that we are staying educated. Our third step flows from that. And so my question is, you know, where are there spaces in your life for small changes? And I'm talking really, really small changes. Like you're not doing anything different, but just making a slight adjustment to your life. So here's an example from my life. 
So when I moved out to New York City, one of the things that I noticed, and I don't know if this is just the area that I live in or what, but they would double bag everything, like when I would go to the store. It didn't matter what I was buying. I remember distinctly this time where all I bought was a loaf of bread, and they double bagged it. I'm like, I don't need two bags for like literally like the lightest thing in the world, like a loaf of bread, right? And so what I would do is I would just say, oh, can you actually just give me one bag, like just a single bag? And then after a couple weeks, I was just like, wait a minute, I don't need any of these bags. Like, I can just bring a bag from home with me to the store, and it's a really easy way to eliminate all of that waste. Now I'm not bringing home any of these plastic bags, because when I do that, then it's like, okay, how am I going to reuse this? How will I recycle it? But it's like, I can just completely eliminate the issue by bringing my own bag. So I'm not really doing anything that dramatically different, and yet, this one really simple action is making an important difference for God's creation. Another example is um, bringing a cup with you wherever you end up going. So they estimate that the average American office worker goes through 500 disposable cups in a year. That's a lot. That's a lot of waste. That's a lot of resources that are going into that. But if you just bring your mug with you or bring a water bottle, or if you're me, you bring both because I, I like my beverages. So i got to have my water, i got to have my coffee, my tea, all that stuff. If you bring those with you, you automatically eliminate all that waste. So it's not like you're really changing too much. You know, you're still drinking your coffee or your tea or your water, but you're just bringing a mug or you know, a water bottle with you, and that way you're not making all that extra waste or using all those extra resources. So again, thinking about just small ways, uh, small changes, adjustments in our life that will allow us to affirm creation in how we're living today. The fourth step that I have for us is to try something completely new. So something totally different. Just sort of put yourself out there and try to learn something totally new that you can do with your life that will affirm creation, that will um, allow you to image God better out to the other parts of creation. So some examples might be like learning how to compost, or maybe you'll learn how to take public transportation or your bike to work, or maybe you'll do something like change your eating habits so you're eating in a more sustainable way. Um, lots of, there's lots and lots of different things. And I would just recommend just try doing at least one new thing. And I would really recommend um, doing this in community. Because, okay, first of all, everything's more fun with friends. Like, we all know that. It's more fun to do stuff with friends. But besides that, it's really great to have other people around you who can also give you ideas, you know, share their different experiences, who can, you know, you can hold each other accountable. Um, so when you try something new, I'd, I'd advise doing it in community. And also, I'll just say really quick, it's so easy to find new things to do, especially when we have really great, you know, search engines online. So, like, you can just put into Google sustainable living and you'll get a ton of things that will help give you some ideas. Or you can, if you love libraries like I do, like I'm so passionate about libraries, it's almost concerning, but it's a whole different thing. <laughs> but the library has lots of really great resources. So if you're a book person, you can go there and you can do that. There's lots of ways that we can, you know, there's videos, there's blogs, lots of ways that we can think about new things that we can do that can affirm creation that will allow us to image God better out to these other parts of creation. Now, the last thing that I want to say before we transition into another time of worship is a quick word about prayer. Everything in our lives, absolutely everything, should be done in communication with God. And so that's what prayer is all about, bringing God into the picture. And so I would encourage you, um, as we move into this time of worship, to also use it as an opportunity to move into prayer and bring before God anything that's going on for you right now. So even if it's something like, and it doesn't have to be fancy, right? Prayers don't have to be fancy. They can just be regular. So you can just say something like, 
hey, God, you know, I am thinking about the creation. I'm thinking about how can I image you better out to other parts of creation. Like, do you have any ideas for how I might go about doing that? What are some things in my life? Or you could say to God, hey, so I'm trying to think of some different people who I might journey with as I try to make some of these changes. Like, could you bring some people to mind who I could journey with on this? Or even something like, if you're feeling like frustrated or overwhelmed, like, oh, this is another thing that I have to do, and I'm already way too busy, and I have too many things going on, just bring that before God, like whatever's going on inside of you. Or if you're really excited, if you're like those kids who come out to the Arboretum and who are like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe it, like trees, you know, if, if that's what's going on for you, like, that's awesome, and just bring it before the Lord. So I would encourage you to bring all these things before the Lord in prayer, and just ask him for his leading and guiding on how we can do better with imaging him out to the rest of the world, and taking care of this very good creation that God has made. Thank you so much, you guys. I love being here with you.